1985, Neil Postman published a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. The book was primarily about how uh, TV was corrupting American culture, how too much TV was killing our capacity for higher thought and deeper joy. TV was making us a shallow people, amused, perhaps, but not joyful, entertained, certainly, but not wiser. Now, Postman passed away in 2003, just as the internet was becoming dominant, and certainly before smartphones really took off. Who knows what he might say if he had lived to see TikTok and Instagram. Oh, the horrors. But it's really interesting to me. Early in the book, he makes a crucial comparison that has a great deal of insight into our culture. In fact, it's really become the best-known section of Postman's book. He points back to two earlier books, two books from earlier in the 20th century by two men, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, both of whom wrote books about the future, uh, novels that uh, depicted the kind of future we might be headed for. And when Huxley and Orwell wrote their books, as they described this future, they really described it as a kind of dystopia. Uh, it's a very frightening picture of the future, very frightening predictions they were making about where we might be headed as a culture. These books, of course, are Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984. And while Orwell's book got more attention and fame over the years, especially as 1984 came and went, Postman argued that Huxley was actually closer to the truth. Listen to what Postman has to say and how he summarizes and contrasts the two books. And if you're familiar with them, you'll get this. You may have even heard this quote before. It's quite well known. This is what Postman says. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egotism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with technology-driven entertainments. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared what we love will ruin us. Postman says Huxley was right. And I would agree. Huxley was afraid the things that we're trained to enjoy, the things we come to desire, the things we look to for happiness would actually make us willing and unwitting slaves. That we would become slaves of pleasure, but of a kind of cheap pleasure, pleasures that would dehumanize us and destroy us. And I think Huxley got that right. Orwell got a lot of things right, too. But Huxley especially got this right. If you read Brave New World, which I do think it's worth reading, you find people who willingly chain themselves to their entertainments. They become willing addicts of a drug called 
soma, it's kind of a play off the Lord's Supper. Soma means body. So, of course, we have the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Soma is a drug you take, and it numbs you to pain. It sedates you, but it does so keeping you in a kind of pleasurable state. So you just kind of enjoy everything. You can't really enjoy it in a deep way, uh, but uh, it, it, it chemically uh, makes it so that you're in this constant pleasurable state. In Huxley's Brave New World, everyone thinks they are happy, but in reality they've been dehumanized. They've been manipulated and controlled, not by inflicting pain, but rather they are manipulated and controlled by inflicting pleasure. They're controlled because they think they're happy, when really it's a very shallow happiness. What you find actually in Brave New World is that there really is no joy. There's a hollow shell of joy, but not the real thing. And so one of the lessons of the book, I think, is this. We are terrible judges of what will really make us happy. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we desire. We think we know what will make us happy. And yet so often we're wrong. We think we know what we want. We think we know where happiness is found. And yet all too often we are wrong. Now, David, the ancient psalmist and king of Israel, would agree with Huxley to a point. He would agree with Huxley, I think, on that point. That the, so often the things we think will make us happy do not. But David also knew something that Huxley didn't. And that's what we find in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is David's prayerful look at where true happiness is found. Deep happiness lasting happiness, resilient happiness, the deepest kind of happiness, the fullest kind of happiness imaginable. Psalm 16 is a psalm about joy. It's a psalm about happiness, a psalm about pleasure. You might say that for David, according to this psalm, for David, sin is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. That's the essence of sin, seeking happiness in the wrong places places. Righteousness then is seeking happiness in the right places and salvation is finding it. Salvation is finding that happiness in its ultimate and eternal form. That's what this psalm is about. It's a psalm about joy, about pleasure, about happiness. Huxley was a kind of cultural prophet, you could say. Huxley was a kind of cultural prophet who could see where Western civilization was headed. He could see the trajectory of self-destruction that Western man was on. Because Western man has conditioned himself to love the wrong things, to confuse freedom with slavery, to seek pleasures that are actually destructive, when we're seeing that destruction play out right before our eyes in our culture right now. Huxley saw that. He was right about that. David sees that too. He identifies the same problem, but David goes further because David's not just a cultural prophet. He's a prophet of the true God. And so he shows us not just what's wrong with the ways fallen people seek pleasure, but he shows us the way to true and lasting pleasure, the way to true and lasting freedom and joy. And again, that's really what Psalm 16 is about. We're going to look at Psalm 16 this morning, and Lord willing, we'll come back and look at it next week, so we'll try to get through roughly the first half of it this morning. There is so much here, and really Psalm 16 can do double duty for us. It can function certainly as a gospel prophecy that foretells the salvation that will be accomplished for God's people 
in Christ's resurrection. This is a psalm about Jesus and about salvation. Certainly that's there. But Psalm 16 can also be used uh, as providing a kind of cultural criticism, giving us wisdom about our world, giving us wisdom about the fallen condition in which we find ourselves in. Psalm 16 shows us the bankruptcy of seeking happiness anywhere other than God himself. It exposes the futility of seeking happiness anywhere other than God. That's really what this psalm is about. So again, Psalm 16 tells us, it shows us this is what sin is. Sin is seeking happiness in the wrong places. Salvation is finding happiness in the right place, the one place where it really can be found. It shows us the right way to seek happiness. It does not, note this, this psalm does not suppress our desire for happiness. If anything, this psalm would tell us, do not settle for a lesser happiness. Go for the greatest happiness of all. And this psalm gives us a map. It gives us a, a pathway of how to get there, how to find this happiness. Now, what is Psalm 16 about? How does it work? Well, uh, the psalm title tells us this is a miktam, a miktam of David. Now, nobody knows exactly what a miktam is. That's why it's left untranslated. That's, uh, that's just uh, the Hebrew word brought over into English. But there are five other psalms that are called miktams in the Psalter. Some think it must be some kind of musical notation. Uh, I think it's more likely a reference to the circumstances that occasioned these prayers. You have these psalms that are called miktams, and every one of them very clearly comes out of a very difficult situation, some kind of trial or struggle or difficulty for the psalmist. So these are prayers that are composed in the midst of a crisis. These are prayers suited for a trial of some sort. Uh, and I think that's certainly the case with Psalm 16. It's clear that as David writes this psalm, as he composes this song, this prayer, that David's under the gun. Uh, David's under great pressure. David's going through some kind of trial. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's certainly in some kind of danger. You can tell by the things he, he writes, by the things he says here. Uh, probably, and I've got reasons for thinking this that I might go into later, probably this psalm is composed when David is fleeing from Saul. Remember, King Saul wanted to kill David, and David was a hunted man. He was a wanted man, and King Saul and all of King Saul's men were after David to put him to death. I think that's the occasion of this psalm. This psalm is a prayer, certainly, but it's a prayer with only one petition, Imagine having a prayer as long as this one. This is 11 verses long. Imagine having a prayer as long as this one and only asking God for one thing. That's what David does here. There's only one petition, and it comes in the very first line of the psalm. David says, preserve me, or depending on how your translation reads, he says, protect me, guard me, keep me. That's David's petition. It's put in an imperative form as if David is giving God a command. But of course, David's not ordering God around. Rather, he's calling on God's protection and he expects God's protection. Why? Because, as he says, he has taken refuge in God himself. David has fled to God for refuge, and so he expects to find refuge. He's come to God for protection, and so he expects to find protection. David expects God to protect him because he's seeking protection in God. That's the way it works, right? You seek God for protection, and so you expect God to 
protect you. He expects God to save him, not because he's earned it. David's not pleading his own merits here. Rather, he expects God's protection because he has sought it. And so basically, David says, keep me safe because I'm seeking safety in you. David seeks refuge in God. He expects God to be a mighty fortress for him. He expects God to be a safe space, not the kind of safe space you find on a college campus. That's ridiculous. But a true safe space for a man who is in great danger. He expects God to be his shelter from the storm. I think you could say this is one of those prayers that is answered in its praying. It's one of those prayers that is answered as it is prayed. In the very act of calling upon God to be his refuge, God becomes his refuge. That's how it works. You cry out to God for protection, and in the very act of crying out for protection, God becomes your protector. God keeps us in part by means of our prayers to be kept. God keeps us precisely as we continue to look to him as our keeper. To make God our refuge is to put our trust in God. In fact, again, this is if you compare translations, you will see this in the opening line of the psalm. English translations do different things with us. Some translations say, in you I put my trust, like the New King James. Others say, in you I take refuge, that's the ESV. Same thing. Putting your trust in God is making God your refuge. That's where David begins. Verse 2. Oh, my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. Or it could be translated, you are my master, you are my sovereign, you are my Lord. This is not just a confession that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord over all, that Yahweh alone is God. No, this is one of those places where the personal pronoun is everything. When you read scripture, always pay attention to these kind of possessive pronouns. What does David say here? Not just that Yahweh is God, but that Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my Lord, my master, my king, my God. See, for David, God is not just some abstract concept. He's not the force. He's not the unmoved mover. He's not some higher power. He's not even just the big man upstairs. David says the God who created everything, the God who controls everything, the God who has planned everything that will ever happen in the universe, David says that God is my God. That God is a God I know. I know him personally and intimately. I am on speaking terms with the God of the universe. He is my God. And so his promises are mine, his love is mine, his grace is mine. I know that he guards me, I know that he takes care of me, I know he is a refuge for me. The opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, the opening question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, capture the spirit of this well. The and again, here, note the possessive pronouns. The Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, a teacher or a parent asking a child, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer in part reads, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what David is saying. God is my God. He is my Lord, my Savior. I belong to God, and God belongs to me. David says, my Lord. This is what he means. He's my Savior, my God, my ruler. 
David goes on, and again here, there, this gets translated different ways, but I think the best way of reading the next line, David says, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. This line indicates not only that every gift David enjoys in this life and in the life to come is given to him by God, it's also a confession that God himself is David's highest good. It's not just that God gives goods to David. It's that God is David's highest good. David finds God to be his greatest good and his greatest treasure. If you were to ask God, if you were to ask David, David, what is your chief end in life? What is your greatest good in life? What is your greatest treasure in life? David would say, my highest good and my greatest treasure is God himself. David here is confessing that all of his goods and his goodness come from the good God. That God is the source of all goodness. Everything that is good in the world and in our lives traces back to the good God. David here really is expressing his satisfaction with God. David is satisfied in God. He is content with God, content with God's gifts. Even though he's enduring a hard time, he can say, God... You're my highest good. You're, you're my ultimate good, my, my greatest treasure. David is satisfied with God. Of course, in speaking of goodness in this way, David is echoing Genesis 1, in which God calls everything he made good. Here, David is agreeing with that. God is the ultimate good, and his gifts reveal and reflect that infinite goodness. So whatever gifts of God we experience in this life, the goodness of those gifts points us back to the goodness of the giver. Verse 3 then connects loving God with loving his people. This is a major theme throughout the scripture. It's a big theme in, in 1 John, which uh, Pastor Cam has been going through in uh, one of the adult Sunday school classes. Loving God and loving his people go together. Uh, David says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom I delight. This is how David describes the people of God. One of the greatest goods God gives us is fellowship with his people. What we confess in the creed as the communion of the saints. What is David saying here? Just as we love God, we're to love his people. Community matters. Fellowship matters. Friendship matters. Hospitality matters. David finds joy in God, yes, but he also finds joy in God's people. And note here, it's not just the saints in heaven, in some imagined perfected state that David delights in. Oh, I'll delight in the saints when we're all together in glory. No, it's the saints right now on earth. Which means David delights in the people of God, even with all their shortcomings, all their sins, all their scandals even, all their quirks, all their embarrassments. David delights in the people of God. He looks at the church, he looks at the, the people of God, and he finds joy in them. This is important for us to see, too. You know, in our day, our culture is experiencing something of a loneliness crisis. We are enduring a crisis due to the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of social trust, breakdown of social bonds. We are experiencing a loneliness crisis, a loneliness epidemic. When you look around our culture, you find people all over who are isolated. They are quite literally friendless, in many cases, familyless. 
They have no deep connections with any other people. This makes the church's community all the more important. The church can be an island of connection and community in a culture that's lost it. The church can be a kind of family for people who don't have any. See, David knows the life of faith is a life of pursuing friendships with God's people. It's a life of pursuing community. We can't have communion with God and then reject communion with his people. One way you can measure your love for God is to look at your love for the brethren. Love for God and love for his people go together. Now I realize it can be hard to say what David says here, that you delight in God's saints on the earth because it's easy to look at the church and get really discouraged. There are many Christians who complain about the church far more than they praise the church. Uh, They grumble and complain about God's people. Uh, It's like they're constantly embarrassed by their fellow believers and they're constantly trying to distance themselves from other believers. David doesn't do that. David delights in God's people. He calls them God's excellent ones, or that could be translated his majestic ones or his noble ones. When Psalm 8 says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that majestic, that's the same word used here to describe the people of God. How majestic is the church? How majestic are the saints in all the earth? That's what David is saying here. Uh, David's language makes me think of C.S. Lewis's point in The Weight of Glory. Here, Lewis is looking ahead to the future, but he's bringing that back into the present. He reminds us that all of us as God's people are headed for glory. And if you could see a glorified saint now, let's just listen to what Lewis has to say. Lewis says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting Christian you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It's just an amazing thought. We're headed for glory, and even now we need to see that glory in one another. There's actually another work of of Lewis's that I think also really helps us think this through. It's the Screwtape Letters. So if you're familiar with the screw tape letters, it's a really interesting work. Uh, and I think it captures why it's so hard for us to delight in the people of God. The screw tape letters, think about this, the screw tape letters are fictional letters, quite obviously, from a senior demon to a junior demon who he's mentoring and training. So it's giving you insight into the mind of Satan, the, the, the strategies and tactics that Satan uses to tempt Christians and to draw Christians away from the faith and draw Christians away from God and draw Christians away from the church. And it's really interesting when you read in the screw tape letters the part that has to do with the church and Satan's strategy there. And you get a sense that a lot of times, of course, we give Satan quite a lot of material to work with uh, and we do make it quite hard to, to, to love the people of God. You know, it's easy to love the church in the abstract to say, oh, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, yes, that sounds so wonderful but to love the actual Christian sitting next to you in worship, that can be much more difficult. Uh, It's kind of like the old saying, you know, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. I love humanity in the abstract, but particular people, that's hard for me. Okay, we do the same thing. We say, I love the church, it's Christians I can't stand. That, that, That happens. It can be very difficult for us to love one another in the church. In the screw tape letters, uh, this, this, this older demon, uh, senior demon, tells his protege to seek to drive a wedge 
in this new convert's mind, so there's a new convert that the junior demon is responsible for tempting. And so the senior demon tells the junior demon to seek to drive a wedge between his idealized view of the church as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ and the actual Christians who gather on a Sunday morning because we may not always look all that glorious. And so if, if Satan can succeed in doing that, he can make us disillusioned with the church and we might just walk away from it. So this is what the senior demon says to the junior demon about his, his fellow Christians, about the new convert and his fellow Christians and how to tempt him. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune. Okay, anybody here sing out of tune? I do. <laughs> or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient, so that would be the new Christian, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. When you're disappointed with the church, disappointed with your fellow Christian, Satan wants to grab hold of that and use that as a wedge to drive you apart. Because what does Satan want? Satan, if God wants us to love each other, Satan wants us to hate each other. That's what Satan wants for the church, is to turn us against each other, to make us disgusted with each other. He wants you to think of your fellow Christian as ridiculous. He wants us to bear grudges against each other, to be embarrassed by each other, to think the worst of each other. And all too often he succeeds in this. But this is precisely what David will not allow. David delights in the saints, the actual saints on earth, the flesh and blood people with whom he shares community. He sees them as excellent, as majestic, as noble. That's interesting. There's a steady progression to this psalm. It's, it's like David is stacking an argument with each line of the psalm. And, and so where does he go next? Well, David has extolled the goodness of God and his joy in the companionship of God's people. Now he's going to contrast that with idols and those who go after idols. He's talked about God and his people. Now he's going to talk about idols and idolaters. So you got God and the saints on the one side, now idols and idolaters on the other. Whereas trusting God brings joy, those who run after other gods multiply their misery. That's what David says next. This language of multiplying sorrows actually traces back to the curse placed upon the woman in Genesis chapter 3. Her sorrows would be multiplied in childbirth. Her misery would be multiplied. What had the woman just done in Genesis 3? She had sided with the serpent, thinking that would make her happy. Instead, it brought misery. She became an idolater, and so she exchanged the happiness of God for the misery of idolatry. And that's what David is describing here. You have the joy of the saints on the one side and the misery of idolaters on the other. Note that for David, those are really the only two categories of people that matter. We live in an age dominated by identity politics where all these different groups and everything, you know, all that really matters is which of these groups do you belong to? And we're carving up the culture, we're carving up society into all these different identity groups. For David, none of that matters. For David, there are only two categories, there are only two groups that count for anything. There are those who worship Yahweh and there are those who worship idols. And that's the only line in the human race that David cares about. Everything else pales in comparison to that divide. That's the only line in the world that matters. 
And David makes it clear where his loyalty lies. It lies with God and with the saints. But David also has something to say about idols and idolaters. If the saints are delightful and majestic, what about idolaters? Well, verse 4 is interesting. There's, there's actually a translation problem with verse 4, so I just want to walk you through this real quickly. David says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. That's how my New King James reads. Those who hasten after another god. But the words translated there, hasten after, those are words that actually describe a marriage covenant. In fact, more specifically, the word there for hasten after describes not just a marriage covenant, but the gift that the groom would give to the bride when they marry. So what David is really saying is this. Those who enter into marriage with another god, those who accept gifts from other gods or give gifts to other gods, those who unite themselves to idols, their sorrows will be multiplied. Again, that's what the woman did in the garden. She united herself to a false god. It was an act of spiritual adultery. She joined herself to Satan. Now, you might ask, why would anybody go after a false god? Why would anybody go after an idol in this way? Well, just like Eve, people get deceived. Idols are deceptive. Again, what did we say at the very beginning? What was Huxley's basic insight? Fallen people are terrible judges of what will actually make them happy. We're terrible at predicting or knowing what will actually make us happy. That's part of the fall. Idol worshipers go after their idols thinking this will bring them great joy, and instead it leads to their ruin. They think it's going to bring them great happiness. Instead, it brings them misery. And, of course, we see this again and again in our culture. If people knew what would make them happy... 50% of marriages would not end in divorce. People would make better choices. They would better understand what's going to lead to happiness. Or what about addiction? Think about how an addict thinks. The, the, The drunkard thinks, one more drink will make me happy. That's how the addict... Now, we can watch the addict and know it's not going to make you happy. We can see that. But the addict, his thinking is, one more drink's going to make me happy. Instead, that one more drink just adds to his misery. Women in America believed the feminist agenda, liberating them from marriage and children, would lead to their greater happiness. Instead, what has been found, the opposite has happened, is women have been, quote-unquote, liberated from marriage and from children, from family life. They become more and more miserable. Men have often thought, oh, an endless stream of partners to fornicate with, that's what would make me happy, that's what will satisfy me. But no, this kind of Hookup culture, this kind of casual sex, just leaves men hollow and hurting. There's a momentary pleasure, but it's fleeting, and then there's misery that follows. Teenagers think, oh, I'm going to get on this social media app, and this is going to be my ticket to happiness. This is going to be my key to popularity. It's going to make me happy. And instead, what happens, if the studies are right, it leads to exploding rates of depression. Teens get more and more into social media. It makes them more and more miserable. And so what do they do? We're terrible judges of what will make us happy. They double down and they go after more social media. And they got to get the next app. And it just continues to get worse and worse. Remember what sin is in this psalm. Sin is seeking happiness in the wrong place. That is the essence of idolatry. False gods make false promises they can't keep. 
False gods make false promises, and those who fall for them, those who fall for the lies, end up in misery. And that's why David wants nothing to do with worshiping and serving these false gods. He won't drink their cup. It's interesting, it mentions a cup here, just like God's people have a cup to drink from. Idols give their people cups too, but it turns out it's not a cup of blessing, it is a cup of poison. David won't take the names of these false gods on his lips. He won't confess them or praise them. And we all know, while idolatry looked different in the ancient world, still the same false gods are with us. We're still doing the same thing. We rename the gods. Uh, we, we, we look at it differently as far as that goes. But it's the same false gods. It's the same idols. They've always been with us from the fall on. Now, we're going to look at the second half of this psalm, especially the ending of this psalm next week, where David gives the definitive answer to idolatry and to the misery it brings. He's going to show us where we should seek happiness, how to seek happiness. That's going to be next week. The psalm is moving towards that great conclusion where David is going to show us everything we need to know about joy and about happiness. But even in verses 5 and 6, we can see where David is going. Whereas idols promise happiness and deliver misery, the Lord promises happiness and he delivers it. The Lord delivers on his promise. In verses 5 and 6, David describes his inheritance. He describes this glorious and beautiful inheritance. Verse 5 speaks of a portion and a cup that seems to be food and drink, which contrasts with the idolatrous drink offerings just mentioned. He's not going to drink the cup of idolaters. Instead, he's going to drink the cup of the Lord. Verse 6 speaks of boundary lines and a heritage. Normally, this would be a reference to land and other goods that you might inherit. In fact, in the book of Joshua, when it talks about the allotment of the land to different tribes, it uses the same kind of language of the boundary line. So that seems to be the kind of thing David is talking about here. David, by talking about the cup and portion and the boundary lines and the heritage, he is describing his inheritance in the most comprehensive way possible. Everything you could possibly inherit is included in this language that David uses. So that's what he's talking about. Now, this is what's interesting. Think about what we know of David. David was the youngest son of Jesse. He's got seven older brothers. And if you know how, and I won't go into all of this, but if you know how inheritance laws worked in those days, you would know that David does not have a very big family inheritance coming his way. He's going to get virtually no family inheritance. Inheritance. He's going to get a very small inheritance from his family at best. Not only that, but remember David spent much of his life as an outlaw on the run. He spent much of his life as an outlaw, as a wanted man, fleeing from King Saul who was persecuting him. And so he was, whatever inheritance he might have had, whatever goods he might have had from his family, he was driven away from that, separated from his family inheritance. In fact, I think David probably wrote Psalm 16 in the context of the events that are recorded in 1 Samuel 26. In 1 Samuel 26, David uh, is on the run from Saul. Saul's coming after David. And they end up having this encounter, this brief encounter, where David says to Saul, people have driven me away from the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David says to Saul, look, there are people who are 
separating me from my inheritance, people who want me to lose my inheritance. And note that the same themes that are in Psalm 16 are there in what David says to Saul in 1 Samuel 26, the themes of idolatry, the themes of inheritance, the theme of going after other gods. It's just like what you have in this psalm. See, what's the situation in 1 Samuel 26? David has been driven into exile. He is in danger of losing whatever earthly inheritance he might have in the land of promise. Not only that, but Saul's men have told David to go serve other gods. Hey, we don't want you to be part of Israel. Go serve other gods. Go serve idols. See, for David, remaining faithful to God came at a price. Remaining faithful to God brought great hardship and sacrifice. It was costly for David to be loyal to God. It really cost him something. He really gave something up. He made sacrifices to be faithful to God. But David could see that unfaithfulness to God would cost him even more. See, David knew this truth. Whatever price you pay to be faithful, you lose far less than you would if you went after other gods. Whatever it costs you to be a faithful Christian, it would cost you even more to stop being a faithful Christian. And this is why. David has an absolutely secure inheritance that no one can take away. Look again at verse 5. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Who needs the cup of idolaters when the Lord himself is your cup? He says the lines, that is the boundary lines of his inheritance. He says the boundary lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Why? Because the Lord himself is David's inheritance. In Numbers chapter 18, God told the Levites that Yahweh himself would be their inheritance. They would not have a portion of the promised land the way the other tribes did. Yahweh himself would be the inheritance of the Levites. David is putting himself in the same position. And so now when David takes stock of what God has promised him, when he looks, so to speak, at his net worth, if you will, when David takes stock of what he has and what he's been promised, he sees he cannot lose. Because God himself is his inheritance. Anything, indeed everything else, would be nothing compared to the surpassing worth of having God himself. See, what is David doing here? David is seeking happiness in exactly the right place. He is seeking happiness in the one place where it can be found. And that is why he is so joyful in the midst of trial. Because he has found true happiness. David knows the secret to happiness, and it's this. This is the secret to happiness. I'll let you in on it. The secret to happiness. Your blessing in life is God himself. Your blessing in life is God himself. Your real blessing in this world and the world to come is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Your happiness is having Yahweh as your God. When you can say, Yahweh is my God, Yahweh is my Lord, that is happiness. That's the key that unlocks the doorway to happiness. Sure, God blessed David with many other blessings, many other goods, but the greatest good is God himself. Other goods come and go. Other goods can be lost. God cannot. 
See, if you don't have God, it doesn't matter what else you have. You can't really enjoy it, and you might not get to keep it. But if you do have God, you have everything, even if you have nothing else. If you have God, you have everything. Everything you could ever need or want is found in God. If you have God, you've got everything. What David discovered is that really all his desires for other things, all of his desires for various things in this world, really led him to his deepest desire. A desire for God, a desire that only God can satisfy. Each one of us has a hole in our heart. And that hole can only be filled by the Lord himself. And the reason people run around doing this and that and just making themselves more miserable is because they're leaky. Nothing has ever plugged up the hole. When God comes into your life, when God becomes your God, that hole in your heart gets filled. And now you're not leaking anymore. And you don't have to go running after other gods looking for happiness. Now to say this does not mean the gifts of God don't matter. Gifts like money and property and health and family and feasting. All of these gifts are wonderful things. But those gifts are pointers to the giver. Not substitutes for the giver, not replacements for the giver. Jonathan Edwards described the relationship of God to his gifts like this. He said, the gifts are like shadows, God is the substance. They are the scattered beams, but God is the sun from which they come. They are streams, God is the fountain. They are drops, God is the ocean. The gifts of God are wonderful. The gifts God gives us in this life, the things we get to enjoy. But God is greater than all his gifts. God is greater than all the gifts he gives us in this life. Goods and kindred are wonderful gifts. But as Martin Luther taught us to sing, let goods and kindred go. Why? Because God is greater than his gifts. God is the one thing you can't do without. The one thing you cannot lose. The one thing you cannot afford to lose, but when you have him, you won't lose him. God is ultimately all you need. God is your joy. God is your blessing. God is your inheritance. God is your happiness. He is your peace. He is your deliverance. He is your forgiveness. He is your salvation. He is your satisfaction. He is your contentment. He is your all in all. Again, if you have God, you have everything, even if you have nothing else. If you take refuge in God, you will find the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. If you take refuge in God, if you trust in him, you will find you have a beautiful and unshakable inheritance. You have the best possible portion, the best cup of them all from which to drink, a cup of blessing, a cup that is the Lord himself. Now again, next week we're going to come back, we're going to unpack everything else that's going on in the rest of this psalm. But just here, real, real quickly here at the end, jump ahead to verse 11. What does David say? David says, in verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at God's right hand? Jesus. Jesus. We confess in the creed every week that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. If there are pleasures found at God's right hand, what is that pleasure? The pleasures at God's right hand are found in Jesus. 
He is the pleasure at God's right hand, the pleasure with a capital P. God's joy is in Jesus. Our joy is in Jesus too. God's pleasure is found in Jesus. Our pleasure is ultimately found in him as well. Jesus is our eternal pleasure, our eternal happiness. We're going to see this more fully next week. But Psalm 16 is a psalm about Jesus. Your portion and your cup at this table is Jesus now and for eternity. Your inheritance is Jesus. The joy above all joys, the blessing above all blessings is Jesus himself. He is the one in whom eternal pleasure is found. Again, see, that is David's secret to happiness. Even when in grave danger, even when under great pressure, even when it seems all else has been lost, Jesus is your joy. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Don't give up Jesus. That's the one thing you can't give up. It's the one thing you can't do without. Jesus is an unending fountain of joy, always overflowing with joy. And so, of course, the cup he gives us is always overflowing with joy as well. You can give up anything else, but you can't give up Jesus. You can lose anything else. You can have anything else taken from you, but you can't have Jesus taken from you. And that means your joy can't be taken from you either. Understand, God does want you happy. God really does want you happy. I know a lot of people find that hard to believe that God could want us to be happy, but he does. In fact, he wants you to have the ultimate happiness, the greatest happiness there is. He wants you to be happy in him. He wants you to be happy in his son. He wants you to have the ultimate happiness, infinite happiness, eternal happiness. C.S. Lewis once said, your happiness should never depend on something you can lose. And that's exactly right. And that means your ultimate happiness must be found in Jesus. So let me put it to you this way. You have a duty to find happiness. You have a duty to find joy. God commands you to be happy. And God threatens terrible things if you won't be happy. God commands you to be happy. He commands you to be joyful. That's a command Paul gives again and again in Philippians. Rejoice, I say it again, rejoice. That's a command. You've got a duty to find joy. But what does that mean? It means you've got a duty to find joy in Jesus. And that's not an onerous duty. You've got a duty to find joy in Jesus. That's like telling a hungry man he's got a duty to eat or a thirsty man he's got a duty to drink. If you don't eat, you'll starve. And if you don't seek joy in Jesus, you will be miserable. You will spiritually and emotionally starve unless you make Jesus your joy. This is your God. He is your joy. You find in Jesus an inexhaustible fountain of joy. He is an unending ocean of happiness. He is the eternal source of all goodness and happiness and pleasure. This God, this Jesus belongs to you. He is your inheritance. You can call this God your own, even as David did. You can find eternal pleasures at his right hand in Jesus, even as David did. God is your God which means Jesus is your joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.